Well, I'm excited to see all of you here this morning, and I want to welcome you to this time as we continue in our series, Inspired, as we go through book by book of the uh, Bible, and we are up to the book of James in the New Testament, which if you know where James is, you know we're down the home stretch. just a few more weeks until we finish up with this series. And James, sort of like Tim, James is at the top of my all-time favorite New Testament book list, uh, and it's because of his great practicality. Uh, there's a warning, I think, that goes with the book of James. It is not a book for the weak or the insincere. Now, the wisdom contained here is fairly easily understood. It's just really hard to put it into practice. This is a book for people who want to mature in Christ. And James, I think, pretty much understands the, the importance of maturing in Christ. This James that writes this letter is actually the brother of our Lord. Uh, Matthew and Mark record the names of the brothers of Jesus. Uh, James seems to be the oldest of the four, but none of the brothers were believers until after the resurrection of Christ. Now, you, you can kind of understand that, can't you? I mean, if you had siblings in your family, younger siblings always think the oldest sibling has a Messiah complex to begin with. It's just in this case, it was true. Jesus really was the Messiah. But how hard would that be if you're a younger brother to accept that? But once the resurrection occurs, these men become stalwarts in leadership in the, in the first century church. And James, in a sense, I think, is trying to make up for lost time, those precious years he spent in doubt as he tries to challenge the church to mature in their faith. Some great common sense advice in the book of James. Listen to some of these passages. Chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's great advice. Chapter 3, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Each one of us knows that to be true. Chapter 4, submit yourselves into God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Chapter 5. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, James takes these practical concepts, these practical bits of wisdom, and takes them one step farther to a dimension where he adds the spiritual side of things. In his brief letter, James doesn't just provide spiritual rules for us. He actually gives us spiritual tools in order to mature. And one of the tools that he gives to us is the reminder that our faith is always supposed to be a faith of action, that action must accompany our faith because a faith that doesn't do anything, well, let's just read what James says. Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but he has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, well, what good is that? 
In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, some people read this, and they think that James is talking about somehow working or earning our salvation. James is not talking about meritorious deeds. He's, he's not suggesting that in some form or fashion, if we do enough, we will be good enough to earn our salvation. What he is challenging us with here is that mere belief without any kind of response is, is really no belief at all. It's no faith at all. And you understand that faith includes trust, not just belief. And so just believing doesn't cut it. Here's the point. God can look into your heart and mind and know what's going on in your life. God can look into my heart and mind and know what's going on in, in my life. But I can't do that. And you can't either. I have no idea what you're thinking right now. I can't peer into your heart and know what emotions you're dealing with at this point in time. My only ability to assess who you are is by watching your actions and your deeds and listening to what you say. And if what you say and what you do don't come together, if they don't match up, then I begin to think, I'm not sure the person, when they talk about faith and when I talk about faith, we're talking about the same thing. Now, that's your only way of knowing me, too. Uh, I mean, you can't look into my heart, you can't look into my brain, there's not much there, but what is there, you can't see it, all right? But you can watch what I do, and by that draw a conclusion that you and I are on the same page with our faith. So a faith that does not respond in obedient action to God's commands leaves me wondering what kind of a faith, if any faith at all, that is. Now, th this morning is Decision Sunday. Uh, it's a day that we set aside to encourage people to put action behind their faith. Now, maybe you're already a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you've been serving here, or working here, attending here, worshiping here for some time. You just never have gotten around to putting your membership in. And really, membership simply says, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, and I want to be here. This is where I belong. This is going to be my family. This will be my base of service and operation. Okay, great. If you've been thinking about that and you haven't done it yet, then today's the day to do it. Stop procrastinating. Today's the day. Or more, perhaps you have been debating through the years a decision for Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been on the fence about making him your Savior. Then, then I want to encourage you that this morning, it is my hope and prayer that today will be the day when you finally decide for him. Perhaps you've never been obedient to him in Christian baptism. You've never put that action to your faith, then for whatever the reason it has caused you to postpone it, let those reasons fall apart today and just make that call. You know what James would say to you this morning if he was here? James would say, just do it. And I think he'd say it about like that because he wouldn't have a whole lot of patience with us for not growing up and maturing in Christ. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit about baptism today because I, I want you to understand about this act that is so intangibly connected with our faith. And I want to take you to the first instance of Christian baptism recorded in the Scripture. This occurs on, on the first day of the church's existence, by the way. Peter stands up and preaches this incredible sermon, and at the end of the sermon, he says something to the effect that those who are in the crowd have crucified Jesus, but God has made him both Lord and Christ. And, and they're cut to the heart to think about this, and this is what we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, for as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The act of baptism was viewed and practiced with the highest of priority in the ancient church, and I would suggest that it still should be today. So will you allow me for a few moments to remind you of the impact of this marvelous, beautiful act Baptism is, first of all, beautifully symbolic. Now, I've often wondered, folks, how a person who walks in and has never been in a church before, or at least is not too familiar with church, and they see somebody baptized. You saw those pictures on the screen while we were singing that song of people being baptized. If you don't have a clue what baptism is, you look at that and think, this is weird. I mean, who in their right mind in front of a group of people is going to let somebody else put them under the water and then everybody cheers and everybody's glad? I mean, I don't get this. Well, there's a reason you don't get it. It's not been explained. And I understand why that would be confusing. And maybe actually you've been attending church for a long time and you don't understand it. But there is this incredible symbolism in the act of baptism. The original Greek word for baptize means to dip, plunge, or immerse. And that symbolism is critical to our understanding. In Romans chapter 6, we are told that we are baptized into his death, we are therefore buried with Christ through baptism, and that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too walk in newness of life. Now, when you see somebody baptized, and you will see some this morning, because I know some have come with that intention today, they'll walk into the baptistry, and, and they will be laid back into the water, and when they do, their eyes will close. Their ears won't hear very well. They'll take a deep breath and hold it. Their arms will fold up over their chest. They'll be laying horizontal for that split second. They will look like a corpse. Under the water they go. The water closes over them, forming an instantaneous grave, and then out of that water they are raised. Their eyes open. They begin to breathe. They begin to see. They begin to hear. They begin to move about. It's as though they have experienced a death, a burial, and a resurrection and all of the sudden the light goes on and you think, oh, that's what Jesus did for us at the cross and the empty tomb. I get it. What we do in the act of baptism is that we retell the story. We symbolically portray. It's a drama to remind everybody that our salvation comes from Christ who died for our sins and rose that we might have the opportunity to live everlasting life. It is incredibly symbolic. It's beautiful. It is also incredibly significant. It is significant that it happens just once in your spiritual journey. This is not a regular occurrence like taking the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis or sharing our offerings and gifts or praying on a daily basis or doing kind things or saying kind things moment by moment of every day. Baptism is not an ending point, it is a beginning point, and you do it at the beginning of this marvelous journey, and it's like driving a stake in the ground and saying, this is where I chose Christ. Baptism is significant in that it is our response to His grace. We are saved by the grace of God. It is a gift. God did not owe us our salvation, 
And goodness knows none of us deserve his salvation. God took the initiative to save us. Paid for the penalty of our sins with allowing his son to make the ultimate sacrifice. God, God did all of that. And he says, and, and as a result of that, I have a gift for you. Now, when, sometimes when, when you get a gift, there, there may be some instructions on how to receive that gift. Uh, uh, let, me, let me describe it th this way. As a matter of fact, what Peter's audience said was, what do we do? And Peter said, well, this is what you do. You repent of your sins, you're baptized into Christ, and, and that's how we begin our journey. It's interesting to me that the second half of the Bible is called the New Testament. You ever heard of somebody's last will and testament? The New Testament is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ in some form or fashion. And so what he has done is he has given us an inheritance as a gift of everlasting life. Okay, let, let me see if I can put it down this way. Let's suppose that I get a, I get a call from a, a local attorney who tells me about somebody that I, I wasn't even thinking about, that they have included me in their will, and you, and you all know that I love aviation history and flying and all that kind of stuff, and let's just pretend that in this will, this person has left me their airplane, a Piper Cherokee four-seat, 150-horsepower <laughs> aircraft, beautiful, beautiful airplane. I'm just ecstatic. Really? They've left me? What, well, what do I do? And he says, all right, I want you to show up at my office on May the 30th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You bring uh, two pieces of ID, perhaps a passport and your driver's license, so we can make sure that you are who you really are. And then we'll drive to the airport. It'll be in Hangar 2, and, and I'll turn over the title to the airplane. I'll give you the keys to the airplane, and, and, and it's all done. Now, where do you think I'm going to be on May 30th at 2 o'clock? I'm going to be at that attorney's office. I'm going to be early. I'm going to have my driver's license. I'm going to have my passport. I'm going to have my elementary report cards so that he'll know I am who I'm supposed to be. We'll sign the paperwork. We'll get in his car. We'll drive to the airport. We'll go to hangar number two, and he'll give me the title, and he'll give me the keys. And as I drive home, I'll pat myself on the back and say, didn't I do a wonderful job of earning this? And you'd say, are you nuts? You didn't do a thing to earn that. That was a gift. That was an inheritance. And you'd be exactly right. I just followed the instructions of the one who wrote the will on how to receive the free gift. You see, the one who has written us an inheritance in his will, his last will and testament, has told us how to receive this free gift. Baptism is significant in that it is our identification with the most critical moment of history, the death and the burial and the resurrection. When we embrace Christ, when we become one with Christ, and the word united here means as if we just become one. It's like a branch that's grafted into another tree. When we're united with Christ, do you, do you know what happens inside of you? you? You will not feel this. I didn't feel it when I was baptized years ago. You die. You say, well, I, I die. You die. You die to sin. And what that means is that sin no longer has authority over you, no longer has power over you. Sin is still very much alive, and you're still dealing with the temptation, but sin is no longer holding you captive because Christ has freed you from that. Now, let me see if I can explain it this way. I don't know what it's like today, but I know when I was in high school that the, the 
the threat of being asked to go to the principal's office was a, that was pretty unnerving. You didn't want to go to the principal's office. It was rumored that he had a paddle with holes in it that he kept in his desk. Never saw it. I'm just going on hearsay, all right, from those who had experience in the principal's office. But if you, if you, if you had to go there, it was an ominous moment, scared to death. It was even that way if you saw the principal in the hallway. You know, you're passing from class, and here's the principal standing there, and you think, oh, and you don't make eye contact, but you immediately slow down, you walk nicely in the hall, you know, because the principal of the school had total authority over all the students there. And so there, there was some fear and trepidation in the presence of the principal. Once you graduated high school, do you remember the first time you ever met your principal afterwards? Maybe you saw him in the grocery store, maybe it was Target or, or, or Walmart or out the mall or someplace like that. The first time after your graduation, you see your principal, you go, <laughs> and then you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, 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 I'm graduated. I've got a diploma. He no longer has any authority over me. She no longer runs my life. And actually, at that point in time, you can relax. You can go up and have a nice conversation with your principal, which they would love to have with you. But there's a change in relationship. You have died to your principal. Oh, he or she is still very much alive, and you're very much alive, but they no longer have power over you. And when we die to our sin, it no longer holds us captive. Baptism is significant in that it is a cleansing. It's done in water. There is this natural picture of washing. When I take a shower, it is water. When I wash my hands, it is water. It is that, it is that element that seems to spell cleansing. And what God is offering to do is to cleanse our sins by the washing of His, of his Word through the blood of Christ. Now, now, I can't remove my own sins, and so God washes them for me. Baptism is willful surrender. Rob Muncy told me that early in his ministry, he had a couple attending a church who uh, really struggled with, with baptism. As a matter of fact, they, they refused to make a decision for Christ because of baptism. And the husband said to Rob, he said, I will never do that. It is too humiliating to be baptized. Exactly. That's the point. This is a humbling experience. But humility is what God is looking for us to say, Lord, I totally submit to you. I totally surrender to you. It is humbling. You go down dry, you come up wet. If you've got makeup on, it probably doesn't look real good after the water gets a hold of it. Your hair is a mess. It's a humbling moment. And and that's part of the design to, to cause us to remember that we humbly come submitting and surrendering to Jesus Christ. And some people say, well, you know, a, a physical act can't have any spiritual bearing on your life. Seriously? If that's the case, then we're all in a world of hurt because best I recall, the death of Christ was a physical death, and yet by his physical death, he purchased my forgiveness, and by his physical resurrection, he made possible our everlasting life. And when in a few moments, like we do every week, you take communion, it is a physical bit of juice and a physical piece of bread, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it has a spiritual significance to you this morning. If it doesn't, I would suggest you don't take it 
Don't tell me that a physical act doesn't have spiritual impact. Every time we see this physical act of baptism, it reminds us of what only Christ could do. And do not think of it in some meritorious work or fashion. Phil, uh, Alan answered this early in the service on, on, on the question. It is a passive act. It is not something you do. It is something that is done to you. Um, in Romans, we, we were told we are crucified. You know, we, we, we join in his death. We are crucified with him. Uh, you, you couldn't nail yourself to a cross either. Crucifixion was always something that was done to you. Baptism is something that is done to you. It shows your submission. Now, I do not want you to think that I'm suggesting that salvation is found in the act of water baptism alone. I mean, my goodness, that, 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 that would make that something magical or mystical. It's, it's not as if the deed itself is enough or there's something extra potent in the water that really scrubs the soul. I don't believe that if they're baptized, they'll be sanitized kind of a thing as, as if it's devoid of everything else like faith or repentance or confession. But at the opposite extreme, there are those who suggest that just believing is sufficient, but that totally leaves repentance or confession of our faith or our submission in baptism out of the picture, and that's not biblical either. After all, James said the demons believe and they tremble, but they're not saved. Why, why are we so intent on deconstructing the beautiful picture that God himself created? These are his instructions for his free gift. It is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his blood that makes possible our forgiveness of sin. But it is in the one-time act of baptism that we identify with the very event that purchased our salvation. Why is baptism so hard for us? I think part of it's because we're asking all the wrong questions. We ask the questions, well, is baptism necessary for salvation? Or at what moment is a person actually saved? Or what if a person gets stuck out in the desert and wants to accept Christ and there's no water and they die? We're asking all the wrong questions. Those aren't the questions we ought to be asking. The question we ought to be asking is, when can I do this? If God wants me to do this, when can I do this? That's what the Ethiopian asked Philip on his way back to his home nation. He said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? And Philip said, you can. And they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, and they came up out of the water rejoicing. The real question is, when? Because if you're asking the question, should I be baptized into Christ? The simple answer is yes. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you want to follow him and surrender your life to him, and you haven't been baptized, then I'm convinced God wants you to do that. And there's no time like the present and we try to make it as convenient and simple and easy and as pleasant of an experience as we possibly can. My grandparents used to talk about breaking the ice on the ponds to baptize somebody in the winter. Now that's real surrender and commitment, let me tell you. Our baptistry is warm. We, we don't break ice over here. It's warm water. We won't hold you under until you bubble. We won't crack your head on the side of the baptistry. We try to make this as lasting and pleasant an experience as we can. And I could go on for a long time about the theology. I wish we could explore even more of the theology, but we don't have time. But I can tell you this. 
that your baptism will be one of the most memorable moments of your life. April 2nd, 1967, I was 12 years old. I can remember my baptism as if it were yesterday. And, and if there's ever any fogginess in my mind, when did I make this decision to accept Christ? What was going through my mind? Do I really know if I can look back to April 2nd in my mind and I know that's where I drove a stake in the ground and said, this day my journey begins with Jesus Christ for the rest of my life. You see, it was a one-time act that started a journey and through the ups and downs of my life, he has been there. See this gold ring on my finger? It will soon have been there for 37 years. <clears throat> it's, it's worn. With time, uh, it, it has circles all the way around it, uh, but some of those circles are getting pretty uh, worn down. It, it's dull in places. It, it's dented in a couple places, but I want to tell you, I wouldn't trade that piece of jewelry for anything because it's far more than jewelry. Elsie gave that to me on the day when we pledged to spend the rest of our lives together. It was not an ending point. It was a beginning point. And that ring symbolizes the 37 years of ups and downs through the hard times and the good times and all the joys that we've shared and the lives that we've built. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. As a matter of fact, the day that we stood together before the preacher and we pledged our lives to each other was the beginning of a wonderful journey. Is it any wonder then that baptism is like the believers marriage ceremony with Christ it is like saying today I announce to the rest of the world I am his and he is mine and we will ride this journey out to the very end of my life and I treasure this ring I treasure the memory of my baptism into Christ here's the bottom line Jesus was baptized John the Baptist tried to talk him out of it but Jesus prevailed upon him. If the perfect sinless Son of God over John's objection said, this is the right thing to do, that settles it for me. What does it say about us when Jesus submitted to something he didn't need and we refuse to do what we really do need? It's the right thing to do. That's the bottom line. At, at the very least, at the very minimum, baptism is an act of obedience. In the Great Commission, the Bible says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark ends with the words, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. You can, you can look at all the marvelous things about baptism, but you come down to the to the one basic thing, it's a command. Jesus told us to do it. Some of you here have been putting it off for far too long. I'm telling you, today's the day. No more excuses. No more sitting on the fence. No more procrastination. If you're ready, do it now. We're going to sing here in just a couple minutes and give you the opportunity to to make, to make this kind of a decision. And, and I'm going to ask two things of you. Number one, if you're already an immersed believer and you're, you know, you're a part of the body of Christ at large and you've 
not placed your membership here. And membership simply means saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower, this is where I'm going to call home, this is going to be my place of service while I live in Bloomington, Indiana. There's nothing magical or mystical about it, it's just identifying yourself with the rest of us. Number two, if you have been toying with this decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you have been going back and forth, and you've been on like a scales up one day and down the next, can, can I say, stop that now? Just do it. Today is the day. Some folks came with the intention of doing that very thing today, and they're going to be baptized. I hope the rest of you who need to do this will do it today. And I know, I know what some of you are thinking. I know what is going through your mind. Some of you say, well, not today, but, but I'll do it soon. What does soon have over today? Why put something this important off? The older I grow and the more funerals I perform, the more precious time becomes. And I realize when you've got this moment, don't waste the moment or the opportunity. Well, I'll get my clothes wet. No, you won't. We have robes and towels back there. That's no excuse. Oh, my hair will be a mess. That's okay. It'll dry. Hair dries. Well, when we leave, I'm going to be wet. I'll get the car seats wet. Really? <laughs> I've left my window down in the rain and got it wetter than you'll get it going home. Besides that, is, you, go, you want to go to stand in front of God one day and say, well, I never did get around to being baptized. I didn't want to get the seat in the car wet going home. Besides, we've got trash bags for you to put in your car seat so it won't get wet, all right? I'll wait for a more convenient time. When is it going to be more convenient than right now? I want to inconvenience my family. Your family will wait. They will gladly wait. They're, you can't give me a reasonable excuse for not doing it now. If James were here, you know what he'd say. Just do it. And he would know how important it is to follow the Messiah.